Well, uh, a fundamental aspect of being human is that we're storytellers. And we interpret facts, and we're always doing that. We explain our existence, and we want to. We love a good story, and we live in light of the stories we tell ourselves. Stories are incredibly powerful. They move us, motivate us, and make us different. So a TED Talk I listened to this past week, this journalist in 2009 wants to test the power of storytelling, so he goes on eBay and buys 200 objects worth a dollar a piece, trinkets. And then he contacts 200 authors and says to each one, look, take one of these little objects and write a story about it, and we'll sell it. And so the authors agree, they write a story on each object, and of those 200 objects that he bought for a total of $129, he sells them for $8,000. I don't know what kind of, you know, 800% increase, whatever, insane change, the power of a story. And that's just a little word of caution as you go out to buy your Christmas gifts and think that that golf club is going to make you look like and play like one of these. Another uh, TED talk, the, is talking about neuroscientists saying that, you know, when a, a storyteller tells a story or you watch a story, you can light up and the the brains of the listener and the watcher and the, the neurons fire in exactly the same pattern as the teller. It changes us. And if that's true for these sorts of things, it's even more true for the stories you tell yourself and that you live in light of. And so one author says, we become the stories we consume, which is a word of caution to us, but it's also a motivation to consume good stories. Another says each of us lives within the stories we occupy. And so that relates to our little stories, what we tell about ourselves and others, but even more, we are created to live in light of a big story. All humans want that. You and I know that big story that gives meaning and purpose and direction to all of our little stories. We're made for this, and that's what Christmas is about. The big story of God, that God would become man, his multifaceted, all-encompassing, wonderful, truly satisfying story. And we find that all the best stories throughout the world have always reflected this story. They're fictional, imperfect, but they're faint reflections of this truth. One of the best-loved variations in our culture is, or in all cultures, is that variation called the princess and the dragon. It's found throughout the world and all through history. Probably our favorite in our culture is Disney's Sleeping Beauty. We learn about evil. We learn about the need for a hero. We learn about sacrificial love. It, It grips us, affects us. And yet, this story is just a faint reflection of the ultimate story, the true story, because we can really summarize the whole gospel with this little line, kill the dragon and rescue the girl. And and that's what our passage is about today, this gripping, stirring chapter of scripture that's really become my favorite Advent passage. 
And so let's read Revelation 12. Revelation 12.1, and a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth, and another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems, and his tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven, cast them to the earth, and the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, who, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron, but her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now, war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back, but he was defeated, and there was no longer any place for them in heaven, and the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him, and I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation, the power, and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. He accuses them day and night before our God, and they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they love not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them, but... Woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood, but the earth came to the help of the woman. And the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from its mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God, and hold to the testimony of Jesus. And he stood on the sand of the sea. And the grass withers, flowers fade, and this good word endures forever. So Revelation 12, it's the center of Revelation. We begin the second half, and the point of Revelation 12, and as we move to the second half of Revelation, is to go down into the heart of human history, to go down into that which we cannot see, that which is the deepest story, the inner reality, the core of our existence and your individual life. He shows us that what the real problem behind your trials and temptation is, the real purpose of our lives, it's the nativity viewed from the lens of Ephesians 6. That's an all-out spiritual war. That what's really going on in the manger on that day, in that night, with Mary and the animals and Joseph, the shepherds, 
that's far from just a sentimental story, it's, it's all out spiritual warfare. It's God's invasion of grace into this captive world. It's, it's the hero come to, to kill the dragon and rescue the girl. And so we have this great conflict and we have Jesus's great conquest and then we have God's gracious care. And so first the great conflict from verses one to six, John reveals the, the main characters, this great conflict. And, He's trying to capture our imaginations and what stories do to change us and bring us in. And, and so we see the woman and the baby and the dragon, and it's what Christmas is about, the spiritual reality of it. And a woman is crying out in agony, giving birth to a baby while a hideous, powerful, evil dragon is poised to devour this baby. And this is what's really going on in, in the manger, though we don't get Christmas cards about this. It goes back to Genesis 3:15, God's first promise, which he gave right at the point of Adam and Eve's failure. Timely grace. If you want to know timely grace, we get God intervening right at the point of their failure. Right when they enthrone their lot in with the serpent, God intervenes with grace and creates a warfare. Sinclair Ferguson has a wonderful statement. He says, really all human history and the whole message of the Bible is a footnote to Genesis 3.15. It's the outworking of the great conflict between the seed of the woman and the seed of the serpent. And you see, this vision in Revelation 12 that God gives to John, it paints that gospel promise in Genesis 3.15 in vivid colors for us. At the culminating point of this story. And so God presents this breathtaking woman I mean, she takes your breath away. She's described as clothed with the sun and the moon under her feet and on her head a crown of 12 stars. And we ask, who is this glorious woman? Is she Mary? And, and not exactly, not exactly. Verse 12 indicates that, verse 17 indicates that she has a number of offspring, other offspring, and those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. She, she's the woman of Genesis 3.15, Eve as the origin and symbol of this people of God, this messianic community, the church. And recall, if you remember throughout the Old Testament, how like Israel and, and Zion and Jerusalem are often described as this lovely woman. And maybe the passage I like the most is the way Solomon spoke of his wife, which is really how God speaks of his bride when Solomon looks at her with the strength and splendor. Who is this who looks down like the dawn, beautiful as the moon, bright as the sun, awesome as an army of banners? And as Revelation culminates in chapter 19, it says, hallelujah for the Lord God Almighty reigns. Let us rejoice and be glad and give him the glory for the wedding of the lamb has come and his bride has made herself ready. Fine linen, bright and clean was given her to wear. It's the people of God. It's the way heaven views the people of God. And not just in a general way, but remember the rest of her offspring, it's you from heaven's perspective, the redeemed community who's rescued by the Messiah. We look at ourselves, we're so polluted and so sinful. It's so natural to sin, so guilty. 
And yet in Christ, we're clothed with the sun. It's an image of being radiant and holy and even protected. We're, we had the moon under our feet. It's an image of, being, of having dominion and authority. On her head, a crown of 12 stars. It's a striking symbol of 12 tribes and, or 12 apostles and the stars representing things like perfection and unity together and ultimate safety from harm as if the stars are immune from the destruction on the earth. That's heaven's view of who you are. And this glorious woman is pregnant as scripture describes in the the Old Testament people of God is pregnant with Messiah. And it comes out in Isaiah beautifully. They're pregnant with Isaiah. They are the people God has entrusted to be the bearer of Messiah. That was their chief role to be this community of people through whom Messiah could come. And she's crying out in birth pangs, signifying uh, the sufferings and persecutions of the people of God in her mission to be the bearer of Messiah, and now finally she's giving birth to the one we've all waited for. Old Testament shifts to New Testament. BC becomes AD, and we have the seed of the woman arriving at the one it always most spoke about. And so the church and the person of the peasant girl, faithful Mary, gives birth to the long-awaited Messiah. And it's clear that the male child is the Messiah. In our passage, he is said to rule all nations with a rod of iron, and it's a quote from Psalm 2. And Psalm 2, that most important messianic psalm, David says, I will, God speaking, I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my Son, today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron and dash them to pieces like a potter's vessel. We sang just a moment ago the rod of Jesse who undoes Satan's tyranny. And that's what it's speaking about. It's speaking about God's enemies and those who align themselves with the evil one, the evil one himself out of Genesis 3.15, the seed of the serpent. He's come to vanquish him, to crush his head. And the serpent knows this. And so we have the serpent, the third character here. Verse nine says this dragon is the ancient serpent of Genesis 3.15. The deceiving serpent has become a powerful dragon. And he's always tried to exterminate the seed of the woman. The most horrific assault was when Pharaoh sought to drown all the Hebrew babies in the Nile. And so the Old Testament would talk about Pharaoh in terms of the dragon. He was the dragon because evil kingdoms who try to destroy God's people are showing themselves to be fomented and moved and made aggressive by the great dragon himself. And so we saw then, and we see throughout history, that the great dragon has been bent on keeping the serpent slayer from coming. And so this dragon is described as great. He's both massive and mighty. 
He has this red color, the color of warfare, of fire and blood. He has seven heads and 10 horns and on his head are seven diadems or symbols of dominion and control. Because in a real sense, when Adam sinned, as John tells us in his gospel, he gave his authority to the evil one and the, the evil one became the prince of the world, as John tells us. And his power is manifest in that before the Messiah is born, he sweeps a third of the stars out of the sky. We wonder what that means. I mean, it's an image of power, but maybe especially in view of verse one, where stars are the people of God, that the evil one did this intense and effective persecution of the people of God just prior to the coming of Messiah. And we look in Israel's history and that was indeed the case. There was one king, Greek king, named Antiochus IV Epiphanes, who for three and a half years, 168 to 164, he systematically annihilated the Hebrews. It's a dreadful time in Israel's history. It marked them, it comes out in Revelation, but this dreadful persecution of the people of God as they were about to enter the time of bearing Messiah. And so this is the great conflict that reaches its climactic point right in the manger, right there. The glorious bride and the person of Mary viewed as redeemed, the, the bearing the dragon slayer himself and, and at the point of his most vulnerability and weakness, the dragon poised to devour him and gobble him up before he can ever do any harm to him. And when he finally was able to get at him, he did so through Herod when he murdered all the babies two years old and younger in Bethlehem. A fierce attack against the Redeemer. But far from being destroyed, this child is caught up to God and to his throne. And that little phrase is, encompasses Jesus' whole ministry it's everything from his incarnation, his birth from the church to his ascension into glory, having accomplished our redemption. It encompasses everything. It encompasses his, the God-man. It encompasses his, his life. It encompasses his teaching. It encompasses his revelation of God. It encompasses his perfect obedience on our behalf, his self-offering at the cross to take the wrath of God on our behalf and satisfy our sin curse in his person. It encompasses his resurrection from the dead when he conquered hell death, sin, and the devil, and then ascending into heaven, such that it's no wonder that Revelation 19 refers to him as our, as our hero. He rides a white horse and has a sword and is faithful and true and makes war against the dragon and those aligned with him. This is the conflict, and he wins. And that's what's going on in the manger, and it leads to Jesus's great conquest. So, Real quick, Colossians 2.15 says, at the cross, Jesus disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame, triumphing over them. And so in Revelation 12, John pictures that conquest. He describes what's going on in heaven behind all of that when the cross was happening, the resurrection was happening. And there's this intense, fierce battle in the heavenlies and Michael and the armies overpower the great red dragon and cast him to earth. Satan must acknowledge Jesus' victory 
and their defeat when Jesus ascends his throne. And the fact that he's cast to earth indicates something about Jesus' victory for us. The fact that he's cast to earth, the ancient serpent, the great dragon, indicates that prior to Jesus' coming and his cross and his resurrection, that in some sense he had an official place in heaven. And that's what Job and Zechariah speak about, that in some sense he was able to to appear officially before God. And because Adam became guilty, because humanity became guilty, he was able to appear before God and charge them and accuse them to God's face that God should judge them and give them the death sentence for what they, what we had done and who we were. But when our hero came and he was caught up by God to the throne, vindicated and welcomed on the basis of his finished work on our behalf, the devil, the accuser, Satan, lost his place and was cast to the earth and no longer had any right to appear in God's presence to charge the saints. He lost his condemning, accusing authority because Jesus paid the debt basis of which he were able to accuse us. And so on the basis of that, there's this loud voice in heaven, now the salvation and power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come for the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down. It's most likely the redeemed saints in heaven that are exalting God that the accuser is thrown down that cannot lay a charge against you because Jesus has satisfied the penalty for your sin. It's, it's our victory song at Christmas. It's, it's why surrounding Jesus' birth, we have so many songs in the biblical narrative. And that leads to God's gracious care right now. Third, God's gracious care. But the great red dragon, he doesn't accept defeat. He's not a gentleman. It just makes him angrier. He gets even more enraged at Jesus and his people, more enraged at Jesus giving good gifts to his people. He's like a cornered beast. He knows his time is short, so with greater damage he desires to inflict. And so he pursues the woman, this this church, this redeemed community, the bride. He goes after her, even causing this great flood to rise up against her. It's this picture of destructive violence, or it's a picture of a flood of deception, a flood of lies. He's bent on waging all-out war against all the children, the woman, all the believers in Jesus. And that leads into chapter 13, which is really unnerving, It's this ominous scene of the dragon at the the sand of the sea and summoning forth two beasts to whom he delegates authority. And one arises out of the the sea, the the chaotic deep of humanity, and he's a symbol of of anti-God governments that through violence or pressure or coercion would seek to manipulate and draw people away from Christ. And then the beast that arises out of the earth is this symbol of false religions and beliefs. He even looks like this lamb, but speaks like a dragon. 
It's all those beliefs and ideologies and propaganda that appear so innocent and harmless but are godless. And the evil one works through these to draw God's people, if it were, away from him. It's all out spiritual warfare. And so we wonder, he still has a lot of power in our world. What, what can we do? How do we, how do we endure? And so we end Revelation 12 with seven little things that are so important for God's people and are so important for your little stories as they brought into God's big story of redemption. And the first thing in our world in the midst of all the temptations and trials and difficulties is first of all, we know the dragon slayer won the victory and the evil one is a conquered foe. He's a defeated foe and Jesus has won and he reigns. And you and I live in light of that because of Christmas. And second, we know that we too have already conquered in Christ. Verse 11 is a marvelous verse. It, it says, and they have conquered him. They have conquered him. It's, it's a past tense verb that as tough as it gets around you and inside of you, it, as much as you feel the onslaughts of the evil one, that in, in heaven's perspective, it's as if you're already home in glory, clothed with the sun, with the moon under your feet. You've already conquered in Christ. Third, as verse 11 says, we stand on the blood of the lamb. They have conquered by the blood of the lamb. And so when the devil tries to pour forth his flood of accusation, when he feeds you the story of shame, when he brings up in your mind your failings and your weaknesses and your besetting issues, and he seeks to derail for you from a creative, joyful pursuit of God and others, that you look at the devil and say, it's even worse than you think. You don't know the half of it. But I stand and I'm washed by the blood of the lamb and that's why he come and that's how he defeated you. We stand on the blood of the lamb of the dragon slayer. And fourth, they conquered by the word of their testimony, that you and I are bearers of the word of God. And God takes care of us through his word. Notice it's the word of their testimony and all the big things that happen in our world that look so monolithic and impregnable of governments and politics and propaganda and media and systems that seem to be aligned against God and his people. How on earth do we do anything before that? What do we have to counter that? And he says it's simply the word of their testimony as weak as it may appear that it in Ephesians 6 terminology is the offensive weapon of the sword of the spirit. And the word of the gospel demolishes strongholds. And fifth, we read in verse 11 that they didn't love their lives so much. Well, they loved not their lives even unto death. And because Jesus has vanquished hell, death, and sin, death no longer is the enemy that we fear, that we tremble before. We can be patient and enduring and faithful to Christ, come what may, 
because we know the end of the story that he conquered. And then fifth, we know that even though it may be difficult, because of the baby born in the manger to vanquish the evil one, we know his time is short. He may rage, but his time is short. Indeed, the time is 1,260 days. It's time times and half a time. It's 42 months. All of this in Revelation, it's this way of speaking of three and a half years. It goes back to Antiochus Epiphanes again. It was an intense persecution, but it was short because of the grace of God. And so this whole period of time between Christ's coming and his second coming, the already and the not yet is a time of testing and it's hard, but it's also limited because of God's grace and he most assuredly will end it and bring us home. And then seven, what happens now? But the woman flees into the desert on the wings of an eagle and God nourishes her there and has prepared a place for her there. And even in our exile present, in our earthly sojourn, God's sustaining, sovereign, gracious, strong, providential care of you by the Spirit, by the Word, by the church, by his fatherly affection over you, as wings like an eagle, he carries you and cares for you in the desert now. And that's your story. Like, that accurately reflects our world And that's the big story we can give our lives to. And that makes sense of your small stories. And that story shapes your life. It drives your conduct, affects your outlook, revolutionizes our life and our existence and our purpose and our direction, our mission, and the difficulties we encounter. And we honor God that our hero, our redeemer came and he did indeed kill the dragon with a mortal wound His time is short and he's rescuing the girl, the church, because he looks at you as a radiant bride already in glory and is preparing you now for that. May this be the Christmas story that fills your hearts. Amen. Let's stand.